As we talk about the resurrection this morning, I feel there's only one place to start, and that's getting married. And you wonder, what in the world does getting married have to do with the resurrection? Well, of course, for all of us who've gotten married, before it was like we were dead and our life was totally meaningless, right? And then we got married... And it was like we were raised from the dead and all was well. I sure hope Bethany heard that. I was uh, definitely trying to score points with that one. Of course, some of you know that is not always the case and it gets more complicated, unfortunately. But the reason I bring that up is I remember when Bethany and I first started getting to know each other. We didn't know each other that well. And her life was really confusing. So she'd be like, oh, yeah, I was in China for a while. Oh, okay. Well, when was that? And then she'd mention, oh, I took some college classes. I'm like, okay, well, that would normally be when you're like, you know, the way I did it would be like when you're 18, 19. And then it was, oh, I was a nanny kind of right out of high school. And I'm like, okay, China, nanny, Europe, Philippines, lived in California, ran. Oh, man, I could never get a trip. I had to set her down one day and had her bring it like in order chronologically so I could try to figure out where, what, how it all went. And actually, what's kind of interesting is the story of the resurrection is just a little bit like that. So it's in like multiple different places, and each place kind of talks about its own aspects of the resurrection. And so there would be a couple different ways I could handle it. I could sort of do the sit down, like I'm going to try to put all these together for you and create like this smooth uh, thing is that has every aspect in it that we could look at, or we can do what I'm going to do is we are going to look at one particular passage that talks about the resurrection. We're going to talk about why Matthew emphasized what he did. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time bringing in the parts in from the other uh, gospel um, explanations of what happened. I will mention them from time to time as they are important, but primarily we are going to talk about Matthew's explanation of the resurrection. And so the resurrection, of course, is so important that Paul goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ was not raised from the dead, the Christian faith is in vain and we are still dead in our sins. If you would like to kind of go and tackle all the ways to put together the different gospel accounts and, and, and whatnot, there's like at least three main views on how to do that. And uh, you know I like to get nerdy, and I'm just going to try to save you this morning. And so if you would like to read about that, N.T. Wright wrote this really good book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. You should read it if you're really interested in that, but I will leave it alone for this morning. And also, it was kind of interesting, one thing I read, kind of the reasons for the different ways and the different uh, aspects of which they presented the story actually might even have to do with something as simple as the length of the scroll, So Josephus one time talked about, he was writing in a scroll, right? He's writing the story in a scroll. Oh, getting to the end and the story's not over. So he had to figure out a way to shorten up the story because he was literally to the end of the scroll. And so sometimes writers back when they wrote on scrolls actually chose how long to make the ending based on how much scroll they had left. So they might make it longer or they might make it shorter. And so therefore, Matthew, he's got kind of a shorter rendition. It literally may be something as simple as he was running out of space 
So he kind of condensed it more than other people. I thought that was kind of fascinating. So we look at Matthew chapter 28. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, when was this? This was probably on Sunday morning. Women likely wouldn't have walked that far on the Sabbath. You know, they had all these kind of rules, and so therefore it was almost surely Sunday morning that they go do this. There's a lot of debate around this as well, but Jewish tradition was that you usually waited three days to visit the tomb to make sure the person was really dead. I really would love to hear the story that happened in order to create that tradition. I'm sure it had to be a good one. So the women came, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, sometimes, and I know this is what I thought when I was a kid, I always thought this. I always thought, you know what? They had to roll the stone away. So Jesus could get out. Like, how is he going to get out otherwise? It's actually probably not why the stone was rolled away at all. The stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so the witnesses could get in to see what had happened. He didn't particularly need to move the stone in order to get out. It's also interesting here that the soldiers weren't really the first witnesses, right? All this happened. The appearance of lightning, the closing wide of the snow, and the fear of the guards came and trembled and became like dead men. That all happened. They didn't actually see Jesus Christ rise from the dead. They didn't go in, so they're not actually the first witnesses. It's these women. And it's interesting that he chooses women to be the first witnesses. If you're going to say, trying to think of the most credible person I can think of in 2019, you very might, <laughs> might choose a woman, Okay. But if you were going back to the first century and you were going max credibility, you would never, ever choose a woman. For better or worse, their word was not worth as much. And so you would never choose a woman to be the first witness. And that is who they are. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here He's risen, as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Jesus had promised he was going to meet them in Galilee. He told them that in uh, 2632. And the angel is now reminding them, you need to go meet Jesus in Galilee. So they departed with Quickly, the women did, and from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, so on their way, Jesus meets them on the road. He says, greetings. That had to be quite an interesting meeting, an interesting greeting. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And they'll, there they will see me. Now, this gets to be interesting, I think. Who are my brothers? So your first thought might be, this must be the 11. We're down to 11. This must be the 11 disciples, surely. 
kind of makes sense. And it almost surely did include the 11 disciples. The question is, did it include more than the 11 disciples? Now, do you remember last week, some of you may have heard when I talked about when the, the triumphal entry, and we talked about the crowd that had come from Galilee, and they came and like they, they, they spoke before him and whatnot. So he had this kind of fan base, for a lack of a better term, that's a, probably a terrible term, but we're going to roll with it. We had a fan base that went with him. And so when Jesus told these women to go tell my brothers, it likely just wasn't the 11. It was likely also these other people that had gone and to follow him. And you also think to yourself, okay, so he's going to tell these people, why are they going to Galilee? Why Galilee? If you know Israel's history and background, Galilee is, Galilee is kind of a, it's kind of a crappy place, you know. It's really don't, you don't really want to be from there, you know. I thought about coming up with a good illustration on the place you don't want to be from, and then I just realized that was going to get me nothing but trouble. So make up your own and your own mind on that place you don't want to be from. All right? That's, that's where they didn't want to be from. And so it seems like we've kind of got a theme here, I think. He chooses women to be the first witness. He's going to meet them in the Galilee. It's kind of a crappy place to go meet them. Jesus was here for the downtrodden, for the down and out. We go on to verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Now, these guards were likely not like Roman guards. They would have went to Pilate. These are likely temple guards. Matter of fact, probably the reason they didn't get killed for letting this happen was because they were Temple guards are not Roman guards. If Roman guards would have let this happen, it would have been uh, not so good. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And I read a number of things, of course, but the first thing that struck me when I read this, I, I didn't see it anywhere else and I couldn't believe it. But the first thing that struck me when I read this, oh, the power of money. Oh, the power of money. You were in a situation where an angel came and lightning happened and it made you be like a dead man. And all it took for you to deny that it took place was a little coin. A little money. You think, how can people deny the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? <laughs> Apparently, if you just think there's a little money in it, you're going to do it. The power of money. This, the, the thing that hasn't changed, like almost even remotely, our world today. So many things, crimes, so on. Oh, man, you just follow the money. So the Roman soldiers, of course, likely never would have admitted to falling asleep. That would have caused them to death. And what's also noticing here is, what are the priests' reaction here? Are the priests worried about telling the truth? No, this is what their first thought is. Their thought is, how are we going to spin this to get the right reaction from the people? Like, How are we going to spin it? 
Do we care about the truth? No. We care about people's reactions. Oh, this is so tempting for us to do today. So tempting to do today. You're the owner of a company. I'm not an owner of a company, so I can say this. I'm the owner of this magical company. We're huge. We make millions. Trust me, we're super, super successful. We invented something awesome. And I'm trying to increase dividends. You know, I talked to my accountant. He told me we needed to make more money, and you know, my shareholders are upset. And I figured out this really good way to do it. I could decrease the insurance for my employees. Because if I change insurance companies, which of course for my employees, I could make a profit this quarter. Then what do you say to yourself? What am I going to tell my employees? I guarantee you what I'm not going to tell them, right? Probably. I'm not going to tell them the truth that I need, I need dividends this quarter. I'm going to say, we're losing money, so we have to or we're not going to make it. Or one company I work for, they told me, we thought this would be better for you. And I kept reading the plans and just trying to figure out how they had decided this was going to be better for me. Right, so tempting to push away from the truth and just worry about the spin. How are people going to take it? And this is what they do. And the excuse they come up with is really rough. So help me, help me with this now. Tell them that his disciples stole Jesus' body away while you're asleep. So I'm envisioning this. They're sleeping. The disciples come. They're still sleeping, right? I, I, I sleep a lot, and I feel like you don't know that anyone's coming when you're sleeping. And then the stone gets rolled away. You're still sleeping, I think, right? Because otherwise you'd be arresting them at this point. Stone gets rolled away. The body gets taken out. You're still sleeping. You wake up, and somehow you know all this information about what happened while you were sleeping. What a terrible excuse this was. I mean, they got to work on their spin. I mean, I think, I think there's people you can hire for this that kind of help you come up with better stories. We go on to verse, verse 14. It says, and this comes to the governor's ears. We will satisfy him. This is probably a reference to another bribe. We'll bribe him too. Not only do the sort of low-level soldiers, the temple guards, not only will they do it for the money, maybe we could be a little bit more forgiving to them because you know, maybe they have a family that's broke. Maybe they're on hard times. We can understand why they might be more willing to take the money. But I bet the governor was probably doing okay financially and looks like he still was probably plenty willing to take the money. See, how much money is enough? You know, when, when are you not going to get bribed anymore? When I was like 10, like $50 was like enough to get me like to do anything, right? And then you got a little older and it was like $1,000. You just couldn't even imagine having $1,000. Who are we talking about here? This is insanity. And then you get your first job and then, okay, 1000 is still a lot, but it's not that much. And suddenly, now suddenly you know, a million's not that much. If you just get a couple more, it'd be better. It'd be better. Somehow we'll go from $50 to need millions, and we'll, we'll take the bribe. We'll keep taking it. We'll keep taking the money. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. We know this was what was being said all the way up to the time of Justin Martyr. He mentions it. Justin Martyr lived from 
100 to 165 A.D. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, this word now is the Greek word day, which none of you care about, but it's more like but, or could be translated but. Now is a fine translation, but it's, it's more like a contrast. So he's saying, here's the soldiers, the, the priests, that didn't believe, and now he's going to contrast it with those that did believe. So the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which he was directed them. We don't know which mountain. I'm sure someone's got a theory out there if you want to find it. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And this is where we go back to kind of my speech on me thinking it was the brothers was probably just more than the 11. I'm going to argue that while the 11 absolutely did come to this mountain, that it was more than them that came. So when it says they worshipped him, but some doubted, if you think back, and this is a reference to some of the other Gospels, every time the 11 saw Jesus, they had already accepted and worshipped him. It seems like they had already wholeheartedly accepted him at this point. So those that doubted, and this doubting is probably more like a, they were just hesitant. It's like a hesitancy. I think wasn't from the 11, but was from the other people in the fan base, for lack of better words. So these people were hesitant, even though they saw Jesus rising from the dead. They meet him from the place that they said they was going to. They watched him got killed. I think this also reminds us that, you know, sometimes we think if you could just convince people of the resurrection, which certainly helped, right? A lot of people were convinced, certainly helped. Sometimes even that isn't enough. Sometimes even that isn't enough. It wasn't seemed to be enough for the guards. It was, wasn't even enough for Jesus' disciples to follow him, his followers to follow him without hesitation. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus talks about having all this authority now and how it's been given to him. I'll just kind of say this general thing, not to try to get too detailed. Sometimes there's this like debate on when Jesus was given authority and it seems like he always had the authority, is what I'm going to argue. And that at this point, it's not like he suddenly had authority. He didn't. He's now exercising that authority in ways that he wasn't before. So as a human, by putting himself in human body, his authority was limited. He didn't exercise the full use of it. And so now saying, I'm going to be able to exercise it in heaven and earth and everywhere, whereas kind of held back before. Then we go on to verse 19, to some of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For all of you who really struggle with my grammar, and you really should because it's really rough, this part's for you. The verb in this particular verse is make disciples, and it's an imperative. It's like That's a real big stress. Make disciples is a big stress. This is kind of famous. Some of you may have heard this before. Go is not an imperative verb. Go is not the emphasis of the passage, of the verse. Go is a participle. Like, find participle for you if you really like me to, but I'm going to fade, I'm going to phase everybody out here. It's a participle, so it's not the emphasis. Now, go probably does keep some of the emphasis of the imperative of the verb. The parrot of the verb sometimes does go to the participle, so it's not like it's there, not there at all. 
But if you've ever heard that missions organization where they, uh, missions uh, sermon where they talk about go and that's the big emphasis, it comes first because it comes first in the sentence. Going is good. Going is important. It's not the most important thing. This passage is not what's being emphasized as being disciples. Matter of fact, some take it so far, they say it means this. Make disciples as we go. Make disciples as we go. So it's not as much as a call to go, but as disciples where you are. Now, I think it's probably a little bit more than make disciples as we go, because I think it does keep some of the imperative idea. And if you think about what he's going to say in the rest of the context, it seems like going other places is a part of it. It's a little bit hard to make disciples of all nations if you'd never go anywhere. And of course, back in that time, going anywhere was going to be like a major choice that you were going to have to do. So I think it does include that as well. But the key here that he says when his last words that we are to make disciples. And we'll talk about that more. And just aside before we get more into that, some people say baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit kind of look at that as a formula. When you do baptisms, you have to say, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some might even go so far as to do it three times. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Those pastors work out a little bit more than I do, so they've got the, they've got the muscles to be able to do it. It seems like even back as far as we can go to the Didache, which is like the oldest thing we have, church stuff, there is never a formula in baptism. There's never like a you have to do it saying these special words that doesn't exist. Now, I don't have a better idea of what to say than I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So I'm not like suggesting I should say something else. But as far as saying, if you don't say these magic words, it doesn't count. Don't think there's their magic words that suddenly don't count if you don't say it. As a matter of fact, I bet there's times where the magic words have been said, but the intent of the people involved uh, wasn't there. And therefore, the, the words said are weren't as important as the heart of the person taking part in it. So we continue on to this making disciples, says teaching them to observe that I have commanded you. So teaching is another one of the participles. So it says baptizing here in verse 19, baptizing them and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, you don't make disciples by baptizing and teaching. It's not the means of which you make disciples. It's what characterizes making disciples. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the New Testament does not know of a believer who's not baptized. Like they just, when you read the New Testament, someone that decided to become a Christian that wasn't baptized, just like it doesn't even, they can't even imagine it. As a matter of fact, I would argue that all the confusion over why baptism saves you is because the Bible so connects salvation and baptism together because they just assumes, yeah, you get baptized, you get saved, you get baptized. That's, I mean, yeah, obviously. They are so tied together that people have gone a step too far in saying that baptism is a part of salvation. And so if you're someone who's making disciples, baptism is included in that, this way of telling the world that you've become a Christian. Of course, if you're going to decide you're going to be a disciple, you're, of course, going to be taught and want to learn more. These are the things that would characterize making disciples. That's why, um, and I'm sure sometimes this isn't totally fair, sometimes kind of a mean way of saying it is easy believism. Have you ever heard of that? It's kind of like this. Uh, I'm not sure this was always directly characterizing every church, but some churches it was kind of the goal. We get them in, we baptize them, you know, get them to say the words, baptize them, and 
you know, send the numbers into the appropriate place, and the numbers are kind of the, the main goal, right? And uh, there were some people that had been criticized in the past for doing that. And of course, you're missing the step of the teaching if all you think you need to do is get them a good dunk and get them on their way so you can send the numbers in the denomination and win the contest. So, we have these disciples that are eyewitnesses, and they are supposed to become someone who makes disciples. So they go from eyewitnesses to ear witnesses. They saw it, and now they tell. And now they tell. You know what's interesting and I'd like to end on? You know, it, the Great Commission, of course, it's so important. and I, There could be many messages that talk about the importance of evangelism. That is the main thrust. But I want to I wanna emphasize this morning. As we go from the eyewitnesses of the disciples to the earwitnesses of, that they began to do that we carry on today, notice that the Great Commission ends not with a command, but with comfort. I am with you always to the end of the age. So often we have fear. We have fear in evangelizing. We have fear in discipling. We have fear in stepping out. We have fear in doing what God asked us to do. And I just pray that this morning you'd be comforted that Jesus promised at the very end, I will be with you always. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful morning. We just thank you that we can be confident in your promises that you'll always be with us. That when, as we try to make disciples, as we try to tell others about Christ, as we try to emphasize the importance of baptism and learning more and growing, I know that sometimes we just, you know, fear gets us. And Lord, I just pray that we would not let that fear take us. That we would know that through Christ we have comfort. That we would know through what Christ did on the cross, and then ultimately sending your Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and 2, Lord, that we would know that we have the power that, to persevere, and we can take comfort. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand again and sing.